Section 11 of the final report from the National Commission on the BP Deepwater Horizon Oil Spill and Offshore Drilling. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Maria Casper. Final report from the National Commission on the BP Deepwater Horizon Oil Spill and Offshore Drilling. Chapter 4. The Macondo Well and the Blowout. Part 3. Displacing Mud from the Riser and Mounting Signs of a Kick. At 8.02 p.m., the crew opened the annular preventer and began displacing mud and spacer from the riser. Halliburton cementer Chris Hare went to the drill shack to check on the status of the upcoming surface cement plug job. Rivette and Anderson told him the negative pressure test had been successful and that Hare should prepare to set the surface cement plug. Rivette sat down in his driller's chair to monitor the well for kicks, any unplanned influxes of gas or fluids, and other anomalies. As gaseous hydrocarbons in a kick rise up the well-bore, they expand with ever-increasing speed. A barrel of natural gas at Macondo could expand over a hundredfold as it traveled the five thousand feet between the wellhead and the rig above. As the gas expands, it pushes mud upward faster and faster, reducing the pressure on the gas and increasing the speed of the kick, making it imperative that rig crews recognize and respond to a kick as early as possible. The individuals responsible for detecting kicks on a rig include the driller, assistant drillers, and the mud logger. Dewey Rivette was the driller on duty at the time. The two assistant drillers on duty were Donald Clark and Stephen Curtis. Joseph Keith of Sperry Sun was the mud logger. These individuals look for kicks by monitoring real-time data displays in the driller's shack, mud logger's shack, and elsewhere on the rig. They watch two primary parameters. The first, and most reliable when available, is the volume of mud in the active pits. Note. Active pit system. Rigs contain multiple mud pits. The deep water horizon had twenty in all. Various fluids can be stored in these pits, including drilling mud. The active pit system is a subset of the mud pits that the driller selects for monitoring purposes. End note. The volume of mud sent from the active pits into the well should equal the volume of mud returning to the active pits from the well. An increase in volume is a powerful indicator that something is flowing into the well. Second, under normal circumstances, the volume and rate of flow of fluids coming from the well should equal the volume and rate of flow of fluid pumped into the well. If flow out of the well is greater than flow into the well, it is a strong indicator that a kick may be underway. In addition to these two primary parameters, the crew can perform visual flow checks there were a number of cameras and stations on the deep water horizon where the driller, mud logger, and others could observe whether fluids were flowing from the well. When the pumps are shut off and mud is no longer being sent into the well, 
flow out of the well should stop. Visual flow checks are a reliable way to monitor for kicks when pumps are off, and are often used to confirm other kick indicators. Finally, the driller and mudlogger also monitor drill pipe pressure, but it is a more ambiguous kick indicator than the other parameters, because there can be many reasons for a change in drill pressure. If drill pipe pressure decreases while the pump rate remains constant, that may indicate that hydrocarbons have entered the well bore and are moving up the well past the sides of the drill pipe. The lighter weight hydrocarbons exert less downward pressure, meaning the pumps did not need to work as hard to push fluids into the well. If drill pipe pressure increases while the pump rate remains constant, that may indicate that heavier mud is being pushed up from below, perhaps by hydrocarbons, and displacing lighter fluids in the well adjacent to the drill pipe. Unexplained changes in drill pipe pressure may not always indicate a kick, but when observed should be investigated. The crew should shut down the pumps and monitor the well to confirm it is static. If they are unable to do so, they should shut in the well until the source of the readings can be determined. The Deepwater Horizon had two separate systems for collecting and displaying real-time data. The high-tech system, owned by Transocean, was the source on which the Deepwater Horizon's drilling crew typically relied for monitoring the well. The Sperry Sun system, installed and operated by a Halliburton subsidiary at BP's request, sent data back to shore in real time, allowing BP personnel to access and monitor this data from anywhere with an internet connection. Individuals on the rig could monitor data from the Sperry Sun system as well. Note, it is difficult, if not impossible, to know precisely what the driller, assistant drillers, and mudloggers were doing and what data they were looking at between 8 p.m. and the first explosion at 9.49 p.m. Both the high-tech and Sperry Sun displays can be customized, and each operator typically has his own preferred setup. Moreover, the full high-tech data set sank with the rig, leaving only the Sperry Sun subset of the data behind. Because the Sperry Sun data are all that is now available, the Commission focuses upon that data, while recognizing that it is at best an approximation of what the driller, mudlogger, and others on the rig may have been looking at in the hours and minutes leading up to the blowout. End note. Once the crew began displacing the riser with seawater at 8.02 p.m., they confronted the challenge of dealing with all of the returning mud. The driller repeatedly rerouted the mud returns from one pit to another in order to accommodate the incoming volume. During that time, the crew also sent mud from other locations into the active pit system. It is not clear whether the driller, assistant drillers, or mudlogger could adequately monitor active pit volume, or flow in versus flow out, during that time, given all the activity. Nevertheless, things appear to have been relatively uneventful until 9 p.m. Drill pipe pressure was slowly but steadily decreasing over that time, as lighter seawater displaced heavy drilling mud in the riser, 
lowering the pressure in the well and making it progressively easier to push seawater down the well through the drill pipe. At approximately 9.01 p.m., however, the drill pipe pressure, shown by the red line in figure 4.8, began slowly increasing, despite the fact that the pump rate remained constant. Over the next seven minutes, it crept slowly upward, from 1250 to 1350 psi. While the magnitude of the increase may have appeared only as a subtle trend on the Sperry Sun display, the change in direction, from decreasing to increasing, was not. Had someone noticed it, he would have had to explain to himself how the drill pipe pressure could be increasing while the pump rate was not. One possible reason might have been that hydrocarbons were flowing into the well and pushing heavy drilling mud up past the drill pipe. The crew may have been distracted by other matters. At about that time, the last of the mud in the riser was arriving at the rig. After that point, the next returning fluid would be the 400-plus barrels of spacer the crew had pumped into the well during the negative pressure test. BP planned to dump that spacer overboard, but, according to regulations, would first have to run a test to make sure that it had removed all of the oil-based mud from the riser. At 9.08 p.m., the crew shut down the pumps to perform this sheen test. They closed a valve on the flow line that had been carrying fluids from the well to the pit system. Mud engineer Greg Metch sampled the fluid and had it tested. Well site leader Vidrine waited for confirmation that there was no oily sheen on the returning spacer, and mud logger Joseph Keith performed a visual flow check to ensure the well was not flowing while the pumps were off. According to Keith, there was no flow. The pumps were shut down for six minutes, from 9.08 p.m. to 9.14 p.m. Metch took a sample of the returning fluid from the shaker house. Note. The shaker house is a room or small separate structure on the rig for shale shakers, sieves and shakers that remove cuttings from the mud as it comes out of the well. End note. And then went to the mud lab to run the test. He then returned to the shaker house, weighed the sample, and spoke with another of the mud engineers about the results. When Vidrine learned the results, he signed off on the test, and the crew turned the pumps back on. What nobody appears to have noticed during those six minutes, perhaps as a result of all the activity, was that drill pipe pressure was increasing again. With the pumps off, the drill pipe pressure, the red line in the yellow box in figure 4.8, should have stayed constant or gone down. Instead, it went up by approximately 250 psi. This increase in pressure was clear in the Sperry Sun data, and likely would have been clearer on the high-tech display. Had someone noticed it, he would have recognized this as a significant anomaly that warranted further investigation before turning the pumps back on. But by 9.14 p.m., the crew turned the pumps back on, obscuring the signal. Drill pipe pressure increased, but so did the pump rate. Four minutes later, a pressure relief valve on one of the pumps blew. Rivette organized a group of crew members to go to the pump room to fix the valve. 
The group included Derek Hand, Wyatt Kemp, floor hands Shane Rostow and Adam Weiss, and possibly one of the assistant drillers. These men were still attending to the repair at the time of the first explosion. At about 9.20 p.m., senior tool pusher Randy Azell called the rig floor and asked Jason Anderson about the negative pressure test. Anderson responded that it went good. Azell then asked about the displacement. Anderson reassured Azell, it's going fine, I've got this. Shortly before 9.30 p.m., Rivette noticed an odd and unexpected pressure difference between the drill pipe and the kill line. At roughly 9.30 p.m., the crew shut off the pumps to investigate. At about that time, Chief Mate David Young arrived at the rig floor to discuss the upcoming cement plug job with Rivette and Anderson. Young witnessed Rivette and Anderson having a calm discussion about a differential pressure. Anderson informed Young that the cement plug would be delayed. The drill pipe pressure initially decreased after the pumps turned off, but then increased by 550 psi over a 5.5-minute period, figure 4.9. Meanwhile, the pressure on the kill line remained significantly lower. At approximately 9.36 p.m., Rivette ordered floor hand Caleb Holloway to bleed off the drill pipe pressure in an apparent attempt to eliminate the difference. The drill pipe pressure initially dropped off as expected, but immediately began climbing again. Young and Anderson left the rig floor. Despite the mounting evidence of a kick, however, neither Rivette nor Anderson performed a visual flow check or shut in the well. At 9.39 p.m., drill pipe pressure shifted direction and started decreasing. In retrospect, this was a very bad sign. It likely meant that lighter-weight hydrocarbons were now pushing heavy drilling mud out of the way, up the casing, past the drill pipe. Diversion and Explosion Sometime between 9.40 and 9.43 p.m., drilling mud began spewing from the rotary onto the rig floor. This appears to have been the first moment Rivette or others realized that a kick had occurred. At about that time, Anderson and assistant driller Stephen Curtis returned to the rig floor. The men took immediate action. First, they routed the flow coming from the riser through the diverter system, deciding to send it into the mud-gas separator rather than overboard into the sea, which was another option. Note. Diverter system. The diverter system provides two alternate paths for gas or gas-bearing mud returning to the rig from the well. The first path is through the mud-gas separator, MGS. The MGS consists of a series of pipes, valves, and a tank configured to remove gas and trained in relatively small amounts of mud. The gas is then vented from an outlet valve located high on the derrick. The MGS cannot accommodate substantial rates of mud flow. The second path is overboard. The diverter system has two 14-inch pipes, one starboard and one port side, through which the flow can be sent overboard on the downwind side of the rig. End note. 
second they closed one of the annular preventers on the blowout preventer to shut in the well at roughly nine forty five p m assistant driller curtis called senior tool pusher azell to tell him that the well was blowing out that mud was going into the crown on top of the derrick and that anderson was shutting the well in their efforts were futile by the time the rig crew acted gas was already above the blowout preventer rocketing up the riser and expanding rapidly at the commission's november eighth twenty ten hearing a representative from transocean likened it to a five hundred and fifty ton freight train hitting the rig floor followed by what he described as a jet engine's worth of gas coming out of the rotary the flow from the well quickly overwhelmed the mud gas separator system ignition and explosion were all but inevitable the first explosion occurred at approximately nine forty nine p m on the drilling floor the macondo disaster claimed its first victims the well is not sealed by the blowout preventer the blowout preventer is designed to contain pressure within the well bore and halt an uncontrolled flow of hydrocarbons to the rig the deepwater horizons blowout preventer did not succeed in containing the macondo well witness accounts indicate that the rig crew activated one of the annular preventers around nine forty one p m and pressure readings suggest that they activated a variable bore ram which closes around the drill pipe around nine forty six p m flow rates at this point may have been too high for either the annular preventer or a variable bore ram to seal the well earlier kick detection would have improved the odds of success after the first explosion crew members on the bridge attempted to engage the rig's emergency disconnect system the eds the eds should have closed the blind shear ram severed the drill pipe sealed the well and disconnected the rig from the blowout preventer but none of that happened amid confusion on the bridge and initial hesitancy from captain kutchta subsea supervisor chris pleasant rushed to the main control panel and pushed the eds button although the panel indicators lit up the rig never disconnected it is possible that the first explosion had already damaged the cables to the blowout preventer preventing the disconnect sequence from starting even so the blowout preventer's automatic mode function the dead man system should have triggered the blind shear ram after the power communication and hydraulics connections between the rig and the blowout preventer were cut but the dead man failed too although it is too early to tell at this point this failure may have been due to poor maintenance post-incident testing of the two redundant pods that control the dead man revealed low battery charges in one pod and defective solenoid valves in the other if those problems existed at the time of the blowout they would have prevented the dead man system from working note the commission has not yet determined whether the blowout preventer failed to operate as designed or whether any of the factors discussed contributed to such a failure the commission believes it is inappropriate to speculate about answers to those questions at this time test records of critical emergency backup systems have not yet been made available 
More importantly, a government-sponsored forensic analysis of the blowout preventer is still underway. When completed, that should shed light on why the blowout preventer failed to shut in the Macondo well. End note. The Immediate Causes of the Macondo Well Blowout As this narrative suggests, the Macondo blowout was the product of several individual missteps and oversights by BP, Halliburton, and Transocean, which government regulators lacked the authority, the necessary resources, and the technical expertise to prevent. We may never know the precise extent to which each of these missteps and oversights in fact caused the accident to occur. Certainly we will never know what motivated the final decisions of those on the rig who died that night. What we nonetheless do know is considerable and significant. One, each of the mistakes made on the rig and on shore by industry and government increased the risk of a well blowout. Two, the cumulative risk that resulted from these decisions and actions was both unreasonably large and avoidable. And three, the risk of a catastrophic blowout was ultimately realized on April 20th, and several of the mistakes were contributing causes of the blowout. The immediate cause of the Macondo blowout was a failure to contain hydrocarbon pressures in the well. Three things could have contained those pressures. The cement at the bottom of the well, the mud in the well and in the riser, and the blowout preventer. But mistakes and failures to appreciate risk compromised each of these potential barriers, steadily depriving the rig crew of safeguards until the blowout was inevitable and at the very end uncontrollable. Cementing Long String Casing versus Liner BP's decision to employ a long string was not unprecedented. Long strings are used with some frequency by other operators in the Gulf of Mexico, although not very often at wells like Macondo, a deep-water well in an unfamiliar geology requiring a finesse cement job. It is not clear whether the decision to use a long string well design contributed directly to the blowout, but it did increase the difficulty of obtaining a reliable primary cement job in several respects, and primary cement failure was a direct cause of the blowout. The long string decision should have led BP and Halliburton to be on heightened alert for any signs of primary cement failure. Number of centralizers. The evidence to date does not unequivocally establish whether the failure to use 15 additional centralizers was a direct cause of the blowout, but the process by which BP arrived at the decision to use only six centralizers at Macondo illuminates the flaws in BP's management and design procedures, as well as poor communication between BP and Halliburton. For example, it does not appear that BP's team tried to determine before April 15th whether additional centralizers would be needed. Had BP examined the issue earlier, it might have been able to secure additional centralizers of the design it favored. Nor does it appear that BP based its decision on a full examination of all potential risks involved. Instead, the decision appears to have been driven by an aversion to one particular risk, that slip-on centralizers would hang up on other equipment. BP did not inform Halliburton of the number of centralizers it eventually used, 
let alone request new modeling to predict the impact of using only six centralizers. Halliburton happened to find out that BP had run only six centralizers when one of its cement engineers overheard a discussion on the rig. Capping off the communication failures, BP now contends that the 15 additional centralizers the BP team flew to the rig may in fact have been the ones they wanted. BP's investigation report states that BP's Macondo team erroneously believed they had been sent the wrong centralizers. To this day, BP witnesses provide conflicting accounts as to what type of centralizers were actually sent to the rig. BP's overall approach to the centralizer decision is perhaps best summed up in an email from BP engineer Brett Kokalis sent to Brian Morell on April 16th. Kokalis expressed disagreement with Morell's opinion that more centralizers were unnecessary because the hole was straight, but then concluded the email by saying, but who cares? It's done. End of story. We will probably be fine and we'll get a good cement job. I would rather have to squeeze, remediate the cement job, than get stuck above the WH, wellhead. So Guide is right on the risk-reward equation. Float Valve Conversion and Circulating Pressure Whether the float valves converted, let alone whether unconverted float valves contributed to the eventual blowout, has not yet been and may never be established with certainty. But what is certain is that BP's team again failed to take time to consider whether and to what extent the anomalous pressure readings may have indicated other problems or increased the risk of the upcoming cement job. BP's team appears not to have seriously examined why it had to apply over four times the 750 psi design pressure to convert the float valves. More importantly, the team assumed that the sharp drop from 3,142 psi meant the float valves had in fact converted. That was not at all certain. The autofill tube was designed to convert in response to flow-induced pressure. Without the required rate of flow, an increase in static pressure, no matter how great, will not dislodge the tube. While BP's Macondo team focused on the peak pressure reading of 3,142 psi and the fact that circulation was re-established, it does not appear the team ever considered whether sufficient mud flow rate had been achieved to convert the float valves. They should have considered this issue. Because of ECD concerns, BP's engineers had specified a very low circulating pump rate lower than the flow rate necessary to convert the float valves, BP does not appear to have accounted for this fact. Cement Evaluation Log Decision The BP team erred by focusing on full returns as the sole criterion for deciding whether to run a cement evaluation log. Receiving full returns was a good indication that cement or other fluids had not been lost to the weakened formation but full returns provided at best limited or no information about 1. the precise location where the cement had ended up, 2. whether channeling had occurred, 3. whether the cement had been contaminated, or 4. whether the foam cement had remained stable. 
although other indicators such as on-time arrival of the cement plugs and observation of expected lift pressure were reassuring they too provided limited information other cement evaluation tools could have provided more direct information about cementing success cement evaluation logs plainly have their limitations particularly at macondo but while many companies do not run cement evaluation logs until the completion phase bp should have run one here or sought other equivalent indications of cement quality in light of the many issues surrounding and leading up to the cement job bp's own report agrees foam cement testing as explained in an october letter written by the commission's chief counsel independent cement testing conducted by chevron strongly suggests the foam cement slurry used at macondo was unstable as it turned out chevron's tests were consistent with several of halliburton's own internal test results some of which appear never to have been reported to bp halliburton's two february tests both indicated that the foam cement slurry would be unstable which should have prompted the company to reconsider its slurry design it is irrelevant that the february tests were performed on a slightly different slurry than was actually pumped at macondo or that assumptions about downhole temperatures and pressures in february had changed by april nineteenth under the circumstances halliburton should have examined why the february foam cement slurry was unstable and should have highlighted the problematic test results for bp the two april foam stability tests further illuminate problems with halliburton's cement design process like the two february tests the first april test indicated the slurry was unstable note halliburton contends that its lab personnel performed this test improperly but has not yet produced adequate evidence to support this assertion End note. this should have prompted halliburton to review the macondo slurry design immediately given how little time remained before the cement was to be pumped there is no indication that halliburton ever conducted such a review or alerted bp to the results it appears that halliburton personnel responded instead by modifying the test conditions specifically the pre-testing conditioning time and thereby achieving an arguably successful test result halliburton has to date provided nothing to suggest that its personnel selected the final conditioning time based on any sort of disciplined technical analysis of the macondo well conditions moreover halliburton has not yet provided the commission with evidence to support its view that cement should be conditioned for an extended time before stability testing given the apparent importance of this view it should have been supported by careful pre-incident technical analysis and actual physical testing at present it appears only to be an unconfirmed hypothesis even more serious halliburton documents strongly suggest that the final foam stability test results indicating a stable slurry may not even have been available before halliburton pumped the primary cement job at macondo if true halliburton pumped foam cement into the well at macondo at a time when all available test data showed the cement would be in fact unstable risk evaluation 
of Macondo Cementing Decisions and Procedures. BP's fundamental mistake was its failure, notwithstanding the inherent uncertainty of cementing and the many specific risk factors surrounding the cement job at Macondo, to exercise special caution, and accordingly to direct its contractors to be especially vigilant, before relying on the primary cement as a barrier to hydrocarbon flow. Those decisions and risk factors included, among other things, difficult drilling conditions, including serious lost returns in the cementing zone, difficulty converting float equipment and low circulating pressure after purported conversion, no bottoms-up circulation, less than the recommended number of centralizers, low rate of cement flow, and low cement volume. Based on evidence currently available, there is nothing to suggest that BP's engineering team conducted a formal disciplined analysis of the combined impact of these risk factors on the prospects for a successful cement job. There is nothing to suggest that BP communicated a need for elevated vigilance after the job, and there is nothing to indicate that Halliburton highlighted to BP or others the relative difficulty of BP's cementing plan before, during, or after the job, or that it recommended any post-cementing measures to confirm that the primary cement had, in fact, isolated the high-pressure hydrocarbons in the pay zone. End of section 11.